Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Prigozhin's march on Moscow as the head of the Wagner mercenaries turned warlord threatened the very seat of power in nuclear-armed Russia. In a direct challenge of Putin, after refusing to sign a pledge of loyalty to the Russian military and the state, Prigozhin's mercenaries took the city of Rostov hostage, which happens to be the hub for Putin's war against Ukraine. And after barreling towards Moscow, Prigozhin has apparently agreed to stand down after a deal was brokered by the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko. We'll assess the extent to which a nuclear power already engaged in a war with its neighbour is teetering on becoming more like Sudan, with warlords trying to take over once the state loses its monopoly on violence. Joining us is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into nuclear catastrophe. And then we'll get a profile of Yevgeny Prigozhin from someone who was hired by Prigozhin to make a documentary about his mercenary army, having already spent time with and studied Eric Prince's mercenary army Blackwater. Joining us is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He is the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel insurgents and mercenary groups. The author of License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, he recently returned from visiting the front in Ukraine. Then finally, we look into the possibility that the upcoming trial of Donald Trump will revive the much-maligned Russiagate story and lead to more press focus on Trump's connections to the Saudi crown prince MBS, since it is likely that Putin would very much want to see highly classified documents that lay out the United States' vulnerability to attack by a foreign enemy, and MBS would surely be interested in classified documents involving Iran's nuclear capabilities and plans for a military attack on Iran. Joining us to discuss the desperate efforts by House Republicans to shield Donald Trump with show trial hearings and shameful censure votes, is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is George Beebe, who is the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA. And his latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, George. And what do you make of the extraordinary events that just took place over the weekend in Russia? Uh, I guess the closest I could come to a comparison would be the coup attempt to bring it against Gorbachev that led to the rise of Yeltsin and the fall of the Soviet Union. So if that's an analogy, I guess the other shoe hasn't dropped yet, right? <laughs> well, it's been uh, quite a wild 24 hours. Um, I wouldn't really compare this to the uh, the coup uh, back in uh, in 1991 against Gorbachev. Um, that uh, coup was elements of the Russian, uh, the Soviet uh, defense ministry and intelligence uh, services. Uh, it was quite a, a grave threat to Gorbachev. This was a case essentially of a mutiny uh, by a mercenary who um, was uh, leading a private army. Um, and uh, he had some specific demands that I think in retrospect, he absolutely failed to achieve. Um, so you know, this was, I think, not so much a threat to, to Putin's rule or, or to overthrow uh, the, the leadership in Moscow, it, the biggest threat that it posed really was that it would have been a major distraction for the Russian military, something that forced them to divert uh, their attention and their resources from the war to try to deal with this uprising. Um, not because it was a threat to Moscow, but because it was a threat to Russia's supply lines uh, in the south uh, that were, were supplying Ukraine. Um, I think what they worried about was that Wagner would hole up in Rostov, um, essentially take that city hostage, prevent uh, civilians from, uh, from leaving the, the city limits, and force the Russian military to either uh, in, engage in you know, bombardment or artillery shelling of a city and kill numerous uh, Russian civilians in the process, or essentially lay siege to that city, which would have been a long-term drawn-out crisis. So I think the, the real fear in Moscow was, how do we get out of this crisis quickly? Uh, and they managed to do that, I think. And that, uh, that uh, has eliminated some of the worst-case possibilities from this. Right, but the Roscoff on the Don is also the city that he captured, Bogosian, is the headquarters of the Russian war effort in Ukraine. So he essentially captured the headquarters and demanded that the head of the military, the Shoigu and Gerasimov, be put before a firing squad. And of course, he's been trashing them for some time. So the march for justice uh, towards Moscow was suddenly stopped. But 
I think it's not without consequences, though, George, given that Putin made this absolutely freaked out address to the Russian public who are pretty much kept in the dark about everything that's going on in Ukraine. And he came across as being incredibly angry and unhinged. He threatened Prigozhin with treason and betrayal. He said that Prigozhin had stabbed Russia in the back, and then he used one of his bizarre historical analogies going back to 1917 about Tsar Nicholas II stabbing Russia in the back. So the whole thing, I thought, at the end of the day, was probably very damaging to Putin's image as being the guy in control. Yeah, I think that's right. I think this uh, this is a situation where the immediate dangers and worst case scenarios for, for Russia and Putin uh, have ended, but the repercussions for Putin's rule, his authority, his image uh, inside Russia are far from over. I think there are a lot of Russians, uh, including a lot of Russians in the elites in Moscow and St. Petersburg, who are scratching their heads wondering how it is that Putin could have left, uh, could have allowed this situation to spin so far out of control. Uh, and that's, that's something that I think is, is going to uh, do some long-term damage to him. Well, there were reports of oligarchs in the Siloviki rushing to the airport to their private jets. Is it, have you heard those reports? Well, I've heard those reports. I don't know how much credence to give to them. Right. One of the things that uh, was pivotal in this uh, set of events is uh, Prigozhin was gambling. He was betting that he was going to get uh, elements of the Russian military, elements of Russian uh, intelligence services, and significant parts of the Russian public who would... Uh, change sides and, and rally to, to his cause. Um, that was really his only hope of success. That didn't happen as far as we can tell. There were no defections of uh, military commanders or units. Um, nobody in the Russian intelligence services uh, uh, changed sides and swore uh, loyalty to Prigozhin and Wagner. Um, and, and I think that's, uh, that's a significant uh, development um, that that suggests that the divisions within the Russian elites that many have been uh, identifying perhaps are not quite so serious as uh, some had thought. Now, that doesn't mean that I think Putin is in good shape afterwards. This was the most serious crisis that he has faced as president in Russia by far. Um, so this is something that I think is going to cause some doubts about whether he's the guy to continue leading Russia. Well, he uh, clearly is in trouble. And it would seem to me that maybe, I mean, given that Wagner is ostensibly a part of the GRU, I'm just wondering whether there are divisions within, certainly the GRU and the FSB don't seem to get along. Is it possible that this whole sort of exercise, which you have to admit was somewhat theatrical given the you know all of the bluster from Prigozhin and then the sudden turnaround and the deal that was made with uh, Lukashenko it's as though three you know mafia bosses made a deal uh, and they said it certainly acting that way in fact Zelensky referred to it as saying quote the bosses in Moscow do not control anything is it possible that this was ultimately a signal to Putin that he's got to change his mind about this war? I mean, I've, have they figured it out across the board 
what a catastrophe this this has been? Well, um, in brief, I think no, they have not. Uh, there, the, the fundamental uh, difference of opinion right now within Russia is over strategy in the war. Putin has adopted a, a war of attrition strategy. Um, he's trying slowly to grind the Ukrainians down, taking advantage of Russia's superior manpower, its uh, superior military industrial capacity, um, its sheer ability to weather hardship and, and economic sanctions. He's betting that Ukraine can't uh, continue to field a large army over time. It just doesn't have the population base to draw on to do that. Um, that Russia's industrial capacity for manufacturing you know, large numbers of artillery shells and, and missiles is actually greater than that of Ukraine and the West, even if you combine the two. Um, and uh, he's hoping that uh, the West's patience for continuing to supply Ukraine is going to wear down over time. So this is his strategy for winning the war, not through some sort of decisive uh, outmaneuvering or outflanking of the Ukrainians on the battlefield. Now, the, this strategy uh, is a good way to avoid a direct confrontation with the United States and NATO while still winning the war. But it, it is premised on uh, an assumption that the Russian people, the Russian elites will remain patient for a long time. And that's uh, proved to be a tenuous uh, gamble on Putin's part, because a lot of Russians are saying, wait a minute, why are we not acting more decisively? Why are, why are we not ending this war now uh, by you know, mobilizing the country, um, going on a war footing, using our uh, superior attack capabilities decisively now? Um, and that's really the, the, the debate that Prigozhin has, has waded into, and he's far from the only one that feels this way. There are a lot of nationalist, patriotic uh, types in Russia that are saying, hey, you know, Putin's too timid. He's not being aggressive enough in Ukraine. Um, now, um, what I think this uh, latest uh, crisis does is it, even though this worked out uh, favorably for Putin, you know, Prigozhin got nothing that he was demanding in all of this. Um, I think it, in the long run, it puts pressure on Putin to show success on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine. It puts pressure on him to show strength and more aggression. So um, I, I think we're probably headed toward a situation where Russia's patience is not going to be as great. Putin is going to be quicker on the draw uh, in uh, responding to what's happening on the battlefield and more inclined to escalate rather than back down. So you don't see it as a coincidence, George, that this happened just on the eve of what's expected to be uh, the main Ukrainian offensive. They're already making gains. And after all, taking Prigoz and Wagner group out of the battle, they're the most effective force that the Russians have had so far. Well, I think um, I, I don't think that the uh, Ukrainians are, in fact, showing much success in the counteroffensive so far. Um, they, uh, in the first you know, three weeks of this, um, have not even succeeded in, in uh, 
penetrating even the first echelon of, of Russia's multi-echelon fortifications. Uh, and they've taken rather heavy losses. Usually in counteroffenses, if you're not making progress very early on, you're probably not going to make a lot of progress thereafter. That's been the historical pattern. And so while the Ukrainians' public line has been, yeah, it's going slow like right now, yeah, we're, we're you know, running into very formidable Russian offenses, uh, defenses, yeah, we're going to um, have some difficulty, but don't worry, you know, the main thrust of our counteroffensive is still to come. I'm skeptical, I have to say. So I, I, I don't think that this was uh, a coincidence in terms of coming, you know, uh, in coordination with this, this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. I think this was uh, really something that was forced um, inside Russia. You know, uh, Prigozhin has been talking very publicly, very threateningly for many, many weeks now. Uh, and the reaction uh, just a few weeks ago to this was for the Ministry of Defense with Putin's support to uh, order all Wagner private mercenary forces to sign contracts with the regular Russian military. And they had a date, a deadline of July 1st in which they were required to do this. Now, what that did was threaten Prigozhin's control over Wagner. Suddenly, he was not the one that was going to be commanding them. It was going to be the Russian Ministry of Defense. And he elected under those circumstances uh, to uh, use force to try to resolve this. That was a gamble on his part. Uh, I think he lost that gamble. And he's now going to be in Belarus under very close supervision. Well, on that note, in the last minute then, George, can Prigozhin get up to more mischief in uh, Belarus? I mean, after all, Putin just handed a bunch of nukes over to them. I rather doubt it. Um, I, I, I was concerned that he was either going to wind up under arrest or killed on the one hand, or in exile in Ukraine, um, which would have been a very bad thing for Putin because, you know, one of his most outspoken you know, previous uh, supporters w was now on the side of the enemy. Uh, Belarus is far better uh, from Putin's perspective because that's not only a close ally, it's, it's a, a country that the Russian intelligence services have penetrated very thoroughly. So he's going to be under very, very close Belarusian and Russian uh, supervision there. So I doubt he's going to pose much of a problem from there. So just in closing, is it the situation that either Putin will end up with a bullet in his head or that Prigozhin will fall from a seventh floor window? <laughs> well, if I were Prigozhin, I would be uh, preparing all my own meals and being uh, very reluctant to talk on my cell phone <laughs> going forward. Well, George Beebe, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who is the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA. And his latest book is The Russia Trap how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a profile of the Russian warlord, Yevgeny Prigozhin.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He is the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel, insurgent, and mercenary groups. The author of License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, he recently returned from visiting the front in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Young Pelton. Hi, and thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Robert. And you've had a lot of experience with mercenary armies and their leaders. You spent a lot of time with Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. I think you were going to write a book uh, about him, and uh, you got into a lawsuit with him. But you were also apparently approached by Pogosian to do a documentary about his Wagner group. And clearly you didn't have the same fate as three, <laughs> three Russian journalists who were hired to do a documentary about Pogosian's Wagner group and flew down to the Central African Republic where, where Pogosian had them murdered. Yeah. Well, this would have been an all-access documentary, and they were, they were quite insistent that I visit all their operations from Venezuela to Africa, and uh, w they wanted to start in the Donbass region. This is two years ago, you know, before the war with Ukraine. And uh, what they told me was that the, the Duma, the Russian Duma, was going to pass laws that um, made Wagner a, a legitimate uh, entity, because PMCs are, are banned in Russia for obvious reasons now. And, uh, you know, we had many back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, finally, the last sort of straw was like, OK, now all we need to know is that you believe in Russia. And I'm like, oh, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> but I was like, no, sorry. Um, so they are true believers in, in the, the future of Russia. And, of course, the, the, the belief that Russia is, you know, a dominant power. So I, I, I couldn't do a documentary, you know, good faith with that sort of uh, drill. Well, what he's just done, I mean, there's a little bit of background, of course, that about a week ago, Putin asked uh, all of the private military companies, including Wagner and, uh, and Gazprom's got two and Kadyrov and others, to sign a pledge of loyalty to the Russian military and the Russian state. And Prigozhin refused to do it. And then uh, he launched this, what seemed like a suicidal attack on Moscow. How did it strike you? Well, okay. So one thing to remember that Prigozhin is not just the head of a mercenary operation, which which we call Wagner. He's actually intertwined in the supply and cleaning and, and feeding of the Russian military as Concord uh, Management and many other companies. He's also the Internet Research Agency. So he is wound in very tightly with Putin's hybrid warfare capability. And he's running about, I don't know, 12 different operations in Africa and South America. So he is absolutely joined at the hip to Putin. And so one thing that people probably didn't pick up on is that he was mad at Gerasimov and Shoigu, who are essentially the heads of the Russian military operation. And the FSB is a Russian military entity. He is essentially paid for and supported by the GRU, which is a much different intelligence agency. And, and most people don't even want to go into Soviet or Russian intelligence history, but the GRU is, is actually the unit that controls the, the safety of the Russian 
state and the FSB is just considered sort of an employment program for, you know, peasants. So what he was doing was going into Bakhmut and saying, look, this is how you fight a war. I'm going to show you how to do it. Um, and he did a pretty good job compared to the military. But at a certain point in time, the, the military let him down. And that's why he was so angry about, you know, remember he was screaming at the camera about not having shells, not getting support from the military and calling out Shoigu and, and Gerasimov by name. Now, there's one little wrinkle that people also want to pay attention to. There were two generals filmed against a white background. And these are supporters of Wagner. And these people didn't look very happy saying, you know, put stop the coup, you know, come back home. We love you, blah, blah, blah. So there may have been very well a, a coup cooked up with some uh, ringers, these two generals in Moscow. Well, the fact that he took Rostov uh, without any resistance, it looked as if he was holding the city hostage as, as a bargaining chip. What, what did you make of that? Well, Rostov, as you know, is the, is the main sort of organizational center. It's on the border with Donbass. Uh, he very much believes Donbass is his sort of kingdom. And if you saw U.S. troops rolling into um, San Diego, you wouldn't necessarily think they're, they're up to any mischief, right? So I think it was a very confusing situation. And he was able to sort of slide in between that gap where people were sort of incredulous and then suddenly realizing, wow, this guy's going up against Putin. And again, you know, he started sending tanks towards Moscow. So there was some reason for him to have confidence in that he could go all the way. So so what happened was uh, at the last minute, he he agreed to take his troops and himself to Belarus, which is even funnier because, uh, you know, that's Lukashenko is, is best buds with Putin. So it looks like Prizhogin is maintaining his relationship with Putin and he's not happy with the military. So that sort of cuts a little finer line as to why he led this coup. But Putin has called what happened uh, as an act of treason that requires severe punishment, but he didn't use Prigozhin's name. So what does that mean? That means that he had to say that because, you know, one beautiful thing about, I call him Gene, but Eugene Prigozhin is that he, he knows media very, very well. He can do uh, all kinds of analysis on sentiment. He knows that people are upset in Russia and he talks directly to the people. And he was able to get people to watch him, not Putin. And Putin was sort of hiding in his, uh, you know, in the in Red Square. And suddenly Putin was being challenged and he had to say something. But he didn't specifically call out Prizhogin as the target for his vengeance. Well, who else? I mean, that's the weird part about it, isn't it? It's no question that Prigozhin directly challenged the leadership. And my understanding is that they were terrified. The Siloviki, the inner circle, the oligarchs were rushing out to the airport where their private jets were lined up to take them away. They put tanks on the street. I mean, this was a, no question, it was a challenge to well, Putin himself. I've been involved in a number of coups and it's easy to overthrow a government. It's, it's very difficult to stay in power. And I do believe that Prizhogin talks to more than just Russians, oligarchs. He also, you know, he works for the UAE in Libya. He has relationships all around the world. And if he's going to make a run on Moscow, I think he was very confident that he would be able to stay in power in Moscow. And I think Putin knew that. And like I say, if you go back to those two strange videos of the generals, 
um, it's a very strange situation. They're basically telling Prigozhin, okay, you know, calm down, which means Putin probably got to them before Prigozhin did. Yeah, but that means that Putin's got no choice but to get rid of this guy, right? I mean, these yeah, people, but, they're all gangsters, these guys, by the way. Correct. And, and Putin answers to gangsters. And at the end of the day, this is just the end of chapter one, like in a movie. This is sort of the scene before the title setting up the conflict. We now have what we used to be our worst nightmare, a private military company that used to be in the service of the government now turning against the government. And this is the fear ever, you know, ever since you go back to Machiavelli and the city states in Europe. This was why they didn't like mercenaries. Right. But Pagosin claims that the reason he did this was because the Ministry of Defense attacked his camps and killed a lot of his people. Yet there's no evidence of that, is there? Correct. And, and keep in mind. Prigozhin is a master in false flags and propaganda and disinformation. I mean, he, that's his specialty. And he needed something that looked like a trigger. I saw the videos. I didn't see a thousand dead people. That'd be quite a few dead people. I think he just wanted a reason. And I think the reason was that he was about to be sidelined. You remember, he'd pulled back from the front, right? And his guys were just sitting there getting bored. And what do you do when you've got a payroll and a bunch of mercenaries and you're being cut off by the state. So I, I think that over the next weeks, we will we will see and learn more about what actually happened. Well, just to go back over Prigozhin's resume, if you will, uh, Robert, since you know the guy and his operation, he started out as a criminal in the streets of St. Petersburg. His specialty was robbing and mugging and strangling women because they were weak and he ripped, you know, could take away their purses. And then he got into the hot dog business and then he became a chef, caterer, and then uh, caterer to the military with his big company, Concord, supplying the military with food. And I think a lot of other stuff, too. Was he supplying the cheap Chinese tires that meant that the Russian military <laughs> bogged down on their way to Kiev? I, I don't think so. But, you know, he knows the military very, very well. And he, he works with all the military bases. The GRU pays him to recruit people and they're trained next to a GRU base. Um, it would be very silly to think that Prigozhin could exist outside of the GRU. And when you see him talk directly to these two generals and he calls Putin a happy grandpa or whatever, it's very measured, calculated statements. Mm. Well, does that mean that the GRU is sort of sympathetic to him in a way? I mean, well, he's a tool, right? He, he is yeah. a way to get Putin to back out of this war. And, and keep in mind, the, the Russians have been doing this for decades. You know, they even have a unit that assassinates politicians if they get out of line. So the ma managing of the state, managing of criminals, of oligarchs, you know, this is a very sophisticated operation. And I do believe that the oligarchs we're getting tired of trying to hide their money in Turkey and Israel and you know other countries. And there is some pressure on Putin to stop this madness, you know, stop pretending like you're winning or you're fighting a, a war that has any benefit in Ukraine. Right. So that's a hopeful sign, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty bizarre that Russia is sort of poised for civil war at the same time fighting a war against their neighbor. The Ukrainians must be thinking, wow, <laughs> This is amazing. How, how, what luck. Well, zoom back. So you, you've got a, 
a nation that thought they could take over Ukraine in 10 days, right? And that didn't happen. And they theoretically had, you know, the second largest army in the world. And obviously they don't have that. And then they started to get their butts kicked. And then they didn't sort of say, wow, this is not a good idea. And then most of the Western world ganged up and said, hey, you want some old weapons? You can dump them on the Russians, right? And Wait a second. Dump them on the Ukrainians, you mean? No, dump them. The Western nations were giving weapons that were designed to fight Russia to the Ukrainians to dump them on the Russians. In other words, kill as many Russians as you can with these tanks, with these, you know, weapons, whatever. And at some point, Putin should have said, I'm fighting almost the whole world. And remember, Blinken's been running around meeting with the people that are supporting Putin, you know, China, India, all these countries, UAE, Saudi Arabia. And I think he's laying down a very clear message, message that we are going to keep sending weapons to Ukraine to fight Russia until Russia leaves Ukraine. So the internal politics of Russia and Putin's inability to grasp any kind of exit plan probably is what triggered this coup. Well, certainly Pogosin gave hints of that. He almost praised the Ukrainians. I think he genuinely is impressed with the, the way the Ukrainians are fighting, as opposed to the, his scathing review of the Russian military. Well, the Russian military is, is, is a terrible military. They don't know how to fight. And, and Pogosin is not a military man, but you know, obviously he's right there on the front lines and he's hearing all the stories about how the Ukrainians are faster, more mobile, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he knows that he can't win the war. So what is his out? What is how does he get out of, you know, he took Bakhmut. That, that's a feather in his cap. What's he going to do next? And I truly believe that the GRU and, and a number of oligarchs want Putin to back out of Ukraine. It's, it's a silly war. There's no benefit to Russia. And at some point, somebody's going to put a bullet in Putin's head. So, that, you know, give him an exit, an exit plan. So, but what about putting a bullet in Prigozhin's head or having him fall from a seventh floor window? <laughs> I, you know, he seems to be very confident that he is not at any risk. And, and you listen to him talk. You listen to how he addresses, you know, the, the people, which are, of course, the Russian people. He's extremely confident that everything he's doing is going to work out just fine. So he doesn't seem scared. He's not making threats. He's actually doing the things that he says. Well, it's an extraordinary situation, and um, it's not over. I mean, no, we are seeing the beginning of the end for Putin, and and it was done in a fantastic, dramatic way. You know, we're not satisfied because Prigozhin suddenly said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to blink, and uh, Putin can still be in charge." But I don't think it's over. I think it's just starting. Well, Robert Young Pelton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Robert Young Pelton, who's an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous magazine and has had firsthand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's inf most infamous jihadi rebel insurgent and mercenary groups. He's the author of License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror. And he recently returned from visiting the front in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the possibility that we will learn more about Trump's ties to Putin and collusion with MBS from the upcoming trial on Trump's theft of classified documents.
nature, spiritual pride. Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Scott. And last week, there was an amazing hearing in the House Judiciary Committee chaired by Jim Jordan, where he brought along John Durham, the investigator of the investigators that William Barr gave free reign to. And Durham conducted a five-year investigation, which spanned from the Trump DOJ into the Biden DOJ, and Biden decided to let him continue, even though he had come up with nothing. And it sort of backfired because Jim Jordan was trying to, again, muddy the waters and make Trump to be a victim of this witch hunt. But in fact, the Democratic congressman just absolutely excoriated Durham, and he looked like an absolute fool. I have no idea how this man could have risen to such an important position in the DOJ, and he claims he doesn't read newspapers, and he didn't know anything about the extraordinary record of Trump's collusion with Russia, which was the basis of the Mueller report. So here he is, the guy that's out there to to rebut the Mueller report, apparently didn't read it, or at least he didn't cop to reading it. So what did you make of this whole display? Well, I agree with you. Uh, in fact, I would uh, I remove the moderator. I mean, I think it was a complete fiasco for Jim Jordan, uh, who had, you know, a clear purpose in doing all of this, which really was uh, to serve as a rebuttal uh, of accusations that have been brought against Trump. Uh, and I think it failed utterly in that. And, I, you know, I think what we got from Durham were uh, first, I think, a series of evasions attempting to uh, avoid answering questions uh, about the whole history uh, of the Mueller probe uh, by saying he simply didn't know anything about it. But then I think um, Adam Schiff really very skillfully walked him through a series of conclusions uh, of that report, which he had to acknowledge, which which really undercut his claims. But you come back to the beginning, and that is that his entire engagement and instruction here was to review uh, the work of uh, of prior um, Justice Department investigations looking into this matter. So to suggest that he was not familiar with the matters that he was engaged to investigate uh, for a period of many years at an expense of $6 million was absurd. And I think at the end of the day, of course, you've got Matt Gates and other Republican congressmen attacking John Durham, because they were so disappointed by his performance uh, at the hearing. So it was definitely um, not what it was billed to be. But the Republicans, uh, Bill Barr especially, have managed to muddy the waters, have they not? And they've created this phrase, this term Russiagate, as a pejorative. So he, he was spectacularly unsuccessful in investigating the investigators because there was no there there. But that's not to say that 
Russiagate has really muddied the waters. And to this day, I mean, you've got even got this conspiracy theorist guy running for president on the Democratic ticket, RFK Jr., now, you know, spouting Russian propaganda. It's absolutely mind-boggling how they've gotten away with it. I, I think that's right. So if you go back and you look at the release of his report, you see in, um, in the Rupert Murdoch media empire, especially the Wall Street Journal uh, and Fox News, also the, the New York Post, you saw this long, first you saw announcements of what he was going to say before he said it, and then you saw claims that the, um, uh, that the Durham report said things, which you could scour the Durham report and you'd find it didn't say those things at all. So there was, a, uh, I think, a very, very broad propaganda effort uh, issued on the back of that report. And that report really was a massive nothing burger. I mean, it said almost nothing that wasn't said in prior reviews and it had remarkably little criticism um, uh, to offer. And of course, then you've got Durham conducting two prosecutions arising out of it, both of which failed. Um, and that's a pretty powerful fact because it shows that when presented uh, and, uh, with a conflict between the claims of John Durham and the claims of the defendants he was, uh, he was prosecuting, the jury sided with the defendants. But still, even though they the task was to basically discredit the Mueller investigation, to discredit any notion that there was collusion between Trump and Putin, at the end of the day, even though he came up with a nothing burger, Durham, they're still, I think, been successful, haven't they, in basically muddying the waters. And I don't know that anybody in the mainstream press wants to reinvestigate or go back to the Mueller report or to the Senate intelligence report, which is bipartisan, and start looking again at Trump and Putin's collusion? Because I guess, in a way, it's now moved. Trump, of course, was kept alive financially by the Russians for decades. But now it looks like it's the Saudis that are funding him and his family. But would you agree that the mainstream press have dropped the ball? and that nobody wants to talk about Putin and Trump's collusion, because I'm sure it goes on, and Putin is, has plans for 2024, as does MBS. They want this guy back in the White House, clearly. I think this is right. So I think it has been an effective propaganda operation of sorts. And I think within the U.S. public, it's been quite effective with the Republicans. So Republicans feel that um, that claims about collusion with Russia have been effectively refuted uh, by Durham. They weren't actually, not at all. Um, and I think if you watched the hearing Wednesday, you, you could not have uh, uh, come to any different uh, conclusion. Um, but I think you're right that the issue has been pushed aside effectively by this. So what can be done then, to, and particularly in the light of emerging evidence that the Saudis are funding Trump and the Trump family. And uh, there's not much doubt that this golf tournament, the now the merger of the, the PGA and LIV, may well be a conduit to pay off, off uh, Trump. Because if the Saudis, if Mohammed bin Salman overrode his own sovereign investment fund to give $2 billion to Jared Kushner, 
and a billion dollars to Stephen Mnuchin, the former Trump Secretary of Treasury. How much do you think Trump is worth to the Saudis? It's priceless, I think. Uh, I think his values to the Saudis, really, you couldn't put a number on it, but the number we would have to put on it right now would be about $3.3 billion, which seems to be the total in value that's coming from various Saudi sources uh, to the Kushner and Trump families. I, I guess I would just say the, the only hope is in this current prosecution that Jack Smith has brought in Florida um, uh, re relating to mishandling of documents that in the process of this trial, evidence may still arise uh, that would go the next step. So we're not talking about just mishandling, but actual misuse of the documents. Uh, were they shown to um, outsiders, foreigners? Were they sold to outsiders or foreigners? Did he receive value for them? Uh, and I guess I just note that uh, Chris Christie um, and two interviews he's given, he's raised this as a major issue. And, you know, I give him uh, I give him substantial credit for that. Um, and there are several other Republicans who've said that, yes, they are worried about this. They're worried about the fact that the documents he had collected were largely or at least in many cases, there were documents that were of obvious interest to the Saudis. Um, and that is particularly military plans for engaging with Iran. And also information about uh, the, the um, nuclear capabilities of Iran um, and nuclear techno techno technology briefings generally. Well, there were also apparently among these stolen documents, the, among these documents stolen by Trump, is a highly classified document about what America's military vulnerabilities are. And you can bet that Putin would love to get hold of that. I mean, isn't that the kind of crown jewels to know exactly where your enemy is vulnerable? Uh, absolutely, no doubt about it. And I think the technology briefing papers he had dealing with nuclear capabilities also would have been uh, of strong interest. And of course, Putin in his war with Ukraine has established something of an axis, which is North Korea, um, Moscow to Tehran. Tehran has been uh, maybe his single most active ally so far in this. So Putin would have a very strong interest in all these issues surrounding Iran as well. So do you think then that anybody is going to start making these connections and reviving? I mean, obviously we have to wait for the trial and uh, the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, has very quickly given everything in discovery to the Trump lawyers, right? He just landed them on their desk and saying, you know, let's go, let's move. Now, the judge, who's highly suspect, Eileen Cannon, she says she set the date for the trial for August the 14th, but she's never really stuck with those dates. We know Trump wants to delay it, but it's pretty clear from Wednesday's discovery uh, dump, if you want to call it that, of, of the entire case that Jack Smith has against Trump that's now in the hands of the, of the defense and clearly in the hands of Donald Trump. He, he now knows what all of the witnesses said in the grand jury against him. So what do you think of that move? And do you, do you think it actually means that what you just said, Scott, that maybe we'll learn more about Trump's collusion with Saudi Arabia and 
and Russia from the trial. The fact of the matter is that uh, Smith is doing everything he can to make this trial move forward. Do you find that encouraging? Yeah, I, I think that's a very smart move by Jack Smith to do the discovery turnover at such an early point. It shows basically it's a declaration. We're ready for trial right now. We're ready to proceed. Um, and it's a suggestion to the court and to the other side um, that they're not going to uh, easily agree to delays in the process. Now, the, the date that's initially been set, 14th of August, um, that won't stick in the end of the day. Um, and and the, the date is a sort of a nominal placeholder date. Uh, but I think there is going to be a drive to move very quickly. And there's one more thing I'd say. I have um, I've seen some evidence now that uh, Jack Smith, using a grand jury in Washington, D.C., has sought um, information surrounding the bank accounts and financials of offshore Trump organization entities. Um, and, you know, I, I suspect that this may have to do with uh, efforts to see if payments that are untoward were made to Trump during this period of time. During what period of time? When he was in the White House or after? After he left the White House with the documents. With the documents, I see. Well, it does seem that the Gulf merger, first of all, the PGA were, wanted nothing to do with the Saudi LIV, and then the Saudi LIV tour threw tons of money at, at big-name golfers, and then eventually the PGA mysteriously changed its mind altogether because uh, its only argument against LIV was that Mohammed bin Salman has blood on his hands, then suddenly they're in business with him. Now, we know that 93% of LIV is owned by the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, known as the PIF, the Public Investment Fund, although the public have no say in it. It's entirely uh, MBS's piggy bank. We don't know what that other sub 7% is there, do we? We don't know who owns that. And there's some suggestions that Trump does. At the very least, Trump's going to be rewarded with tournaments at his golf courses, which is a good way to loan the money. I, I think that's right. So I, I think there is substantial reason to be concerned that one of the reasons this entire initiative was launched by Saudi Arabia was to provide a vehicle or a cover for payments to Trump. Um, and the fact that Trump figured so quickly uh, as a party hosting uh, uh, events in the Gulf tournament is, is uh, a striking fact. Um, so yes, these are reasons to be to be concerned, and I think just generally, it's it's appropriate, given everything that's happened, to be scrutinizing payments that are made to Trump and to his family by or on behalf of foreign governments or intermediaries for foreign governments. And I'm sure that Jack Smith is doing that. I'm just not sure exactly how aggressive he is in doing that. But if this is a conduit. To, for the Saudis to pay off Trump for the enormous favors that he gave them. He actually, you know, essentially put MBS on the throne, or at least he will be on the throne unless he gets a bullet in the head. And it does seem that, that you know, we know that Trump's first visit was to Saudi Arabia, and we also know that how much money's been pouring into the family in the post-presidency, and we know how much Jared Kushner basically used... Um, intelligence from the president's daily briefing to pass on to 
MBS about who his enemies were and he was able to purge them and and therefore take over and shake them down, take all their money, torture them, kill some of them. I mean, this is who this guy is. And Trump keeps saying, the Saudis are great people. The Saudis are great. Well, they're great because they give you money. But the point is, surely, Scott, that if they can, if they can pay him off through the golf tournaments, couldn't that be a conduit to fund his 2024 election campaign? I mean, the Russians did the same thing. They used vehicles like the NRA to funnel money into Trump. So this time around, could the uh, PGA LIV be a, a conduit for campaign money to re-elect Trump, which clearly, again, Putin wants it desperately because Trump will cut off aid to Ukraine and and presumably uh, Mohammed bin Salman wants it too because uh, he can't stand, he hates Putin, he hates Biden, and he loves Putin. I, I think this is right. And in, in fact, I think uh, there already were uh, clearly um, strong efforts by Gulf interests uh, to fund Republican political campaigns in particular, but also some Democrats uh, during the 2016 election um, and the 2018 election. In fact, there were prosecutions uh, about this. The Tom Barrick prosecution was, in fact, uh, uh, about this. It was not one that was successful, of course. Um, but uh, uh, there's there are established modalities for doing this, and I would be very surprised if that were not being attempted uh, now. And, and, you know, I, I would just point out, yeah, you laid out uh, the history of what happened in the dealings between uh, Kushner and the crown prince before. But, you know, the crown prince also, according to stories that were published in the Daily Mail, not perhaps the most reliable of sources, but still significant, um, uh, the crown prince told people around him that he had received secret information uh, from Jared Kushner. So there is a pattern of transfer of classified information from the Trump family to the Saudi Arabian crown prince already. Well, you know, the CIA did not want to give Kushner a security clearance. I think they they believe he was he uh, that he would not treat this information with confidentiality that was that was required. And of course, it was almost immediately after uh, a meeting that Kushner had with the Crown Prince, uh, at which he did not allow representatives of the State Department or even the DOs translator to be present, that the Crown Prince started his rounding up. Where I think it's pretty clear that he rounded up. Uh, individuals who were sources for the U.S., for the U.S. intelligence services. So so the CIA had very good reason to deny him clearance. Well, it's pretty clear that Kushner did pave the way for MBS to become the crown prince and soon to become the king. But he also, you know, we know that, that Kushner basically was the stenographer for Netanyahu, Israeli Prime Minister and now again Prime Minister. And MBS met secretly with with Netanyahu uh, prior to this. So that the deal to get him into the to make MBS the Crown Prince came through Israel. And it was through Israel that Mohammed bin Salman was introduced 
to the White House and his secret flights to meet Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were the first steps for this idea of normalization, which has led to the Abraham Accords. So that's another aspect of of this that's never been really fully explored in the press. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it shows really the, the Trump family wanting to pay a special role, not U.S. diplomacy uh, or U.S. diplomats, but the Trump family wanted to, wanting to play a special role in securing benefits for the crown prince. I think we have a long track record of that, and that's something to be quite worried about. Um, and and if secrets, if U.S. secrets were used to further that whole effort um, and lots of money is being paid then from the Saudis to the uh, to the Trump and Kushner families, there should be red alarms going off. Well, but just in closing there, Scott, probably the reason why the only person that's talking about this is Chris Christie, who's running for president. He's the one who's been out talking about what a scandal it is that the Saudis paid Kushner $2 billion. It was Chris Christie who put Kushner's father in jail. And both Kushner and his father are very close to Netanyahu, who, when he visited the United States, used to actually sleep in Jared Kushner's bedroom. So they're, they're very close. So you can see the, the pattern there, I think. There's no, it's not an accident that Chris Christie knows what's going on, is trying to sound the alarm. I, I agree with all of that. So I think there's nothing the matter with U.S. diplomacy being involved trying to build better relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but there's a lot uh, there's a lot to be concerned about when it's not public diplomacy, but private or personal initiatives that are being pursued under the auspices of the United States for private gain. That's a very dangerous thing. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
Let's go.